Hello, and welcome to Evergreen Exchange. This is Michelle Watson, partner at Evergreen. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Louis Gav, founder and CEO of GavCal and partner at Evergreen. We discuss the positive and negative factors facing the financial markets in 22 and beyond. Let's get started. Hey, listener, this episode requires an extra disclosure. All views and opinions expressed by any guest of the podcast are solely the individual's views and do not necessarily reflect the views of Evergreen GovCal. Evergreen GovCal's clients may hold securities mentioned in this podcast at any given time. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions or be considered investment advice. Enjoy the episode. Welcome, everyone. Uh, today, um, we have Louis Gav with me today, CEO and founder of GavCal. And um, Louis, let's get started. Um, I think it's appropriate to start this year off discussing some of the positive and negative factors facing the financial markets now, now and in the medium term. Uh, you recently wrote a great article titled SWOT Analysis for 2022. And in there, you pointed out that In 252 trading days of 2021, the U.S. equity markets delivered 72 new all-time highs. Given the strong U.S. equity markets last year and in the past few years, what does that mean for returns in 2022 and in the next few years? Uh, well, first of all, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me, Michelle. It's always uh, it's always great to catch up. I was uh, lucky enough to uh, to to see you in Seattle just a few weeks ago. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad we can we can do this. Thanks. Um, thanks so much for taking the time. Well, you know, you know, if you have uh, 10 reds at uh, the roulette table in a row, right, it means that red comes out. So if we've had a bunch of new all time highs, it means we'll continue having new all time highs. Right. Um, no, I'm, uh, I'm I'm only kidding. Um, look, I think we, we have to acknowledge that uh, 2022 is probably starting already uh, on a very, very different note to to 2021. I think if if you look at 2021 and you looked at the main drivers of markets, we had uh, easy fiscal policy in the United States with big hopes of massive fiscal stimulus coming out of Washington, D.C., the, you know, the bill, Biden's Build Back Better plan and infrastructure spending bills and whatever else, um, and all this to be funded through a uh, very easy monetary policy from the Fed. Uh, now, half the world away in China, meanwhile, you had very different policy settings. Uh, you had uh, Chinese policymakers that were quite intent on making sure that uh, you didn't have the excesses that you'd seen post the 2008 crisis and post the 2008 15, the 2015 stimulus. And, um, and so you had fairly tight uh, monetary and fiscal policies in China. I think in, uh, in 2021, for most of 2021 as well, we also had the hope of uh, fairly stable uh, energy prices. Now, fast forward to today, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that uh, the hopes of massive, easy fiscal policy out of the Biden administration are, are now gone. Uh, it also seems likely that in 2022, the, the uh, Democrats will lose uh, both Congress and the Senate, which will likely mean much tighter purse strings uh, at the federal level. We definitely have tighter purse strings from the Fed. Uh, gone are the days where the Fed uh, was going to was just adding 120 billion uh, a month uh, into the system. But against that, uh, China is starting to ease. You know, China is now dealing with the consequences of its past tightening, and you you know you are seeing problems on the real estate front, big slowdown in growth. So, so China is now easing. So it probably means that. Uh, 
you know the the investment opportunities are uh, the landscape is shifting in front in front of our very eyes and and for me the perhaps the, the biggest shift of them all and the most important and um, you know I know we we discuss it a lot uh, both at Gafcal and within Evergreen is the uh, the looming uh, con- uh, continued increase in energy prices whether it be natural gas whether it be coal whether it be oil uh, the reality is we've under invested in our energy infrastructure over the past five to ten years and as a result uh, energy prices are now going to keep going up and I think this has big big investment consequences. That being the case, um, so if you look at the the globe, who will be able to work through that easier? Is that going to be in the developed markets? Uh, You mentioned China easing. Does that mean that, in fact, you're positive on China equity markets going forward? Well, it all it all depends uh, how long your your outlook is. the The reality is, uh, China is. um, you know, I think going through an extremely important transition, both in its its business model, frankly, its uh, its, its political structure, and investing in China is rife with uncertainty. Having said that, you're very well paid for that uncertainty today. Uh, following a horrible, horrible 2021 uh, on both the high yield debt on on equities, uh, valuations are now extremely, extremely attractive. Uh, and yes, you know, I think if you take extremely undervalued assets, take Chinese high yield debt today, where you know you're getting regularly 20% plus yields, and against that you have an easing of monetary policy and basically bank credit becoming more available. That's a pretty good backdrop for a re-rating of a number of assets. You know, today, you know, last year if you were a property developer in China, basically you didn't have access to bank credit, and so maybe your debt is now trading in the market at. Uh, at 60 cents on the dollar. If tomorrow all of a sudden you do have access to bank credit because the government eases up, then the first thing you do is you go to your bank and you say, hey, I'd like to to, to borrow 100 million, please. And you use that money to buy back your outstanding debt at 60 cents on the dollar. And in so doing, of course, you dramatically uh, clean up your, your balance sheet. And so I think that's what's starting in China right now, and that's what's behind uh, some of the this sort of start of the year rally we've seen in things like Chinese high yield debt and things like the equity of property developers, and and even in uh, in some of the China big tech. So yeah, I think we could be we could be in for a good uh, six month rally here in China. That's exciting. Uh, if you look uh, going back to your your uh, your talk topic of energy. How do you think um, energy plays in the equity markets as far as in the U.S. and then in kind of Europe and the U.K.? How are they going to handle higher energy prices and which one will win in that uh, battle? Well, first first things first, the U.S., of course, has a huge comparative advantage relative to most other uh, rich Western nations, whether you're China, you're Japan, well, China's not Western, but you get my point. Um, rich industrial nations, whether you're Japan, you're Korea's, you're China's, you're Western Europe, and that, of course, the U.S. is more or less self-sufficient uh, when when it comes to energy. And so, you know, if energy prices rise in the U.S., what it means is that typically money might leave from, say, New York or Michigan to go down to Texas and Colorado. Uh, but within the whole spectrum of the U.S., it really doesn't – macro consequences are limited. When energy prices go up, for Europe, it means money leaves from France or Italy to go to Russia or Saudi Arabia or Qatar. 
and that of course is is far more problematic it's it's a genuine drain on on the public purse which is typically reflected through you know all else being equal through through a weaker currency so um so yes the you know if you look at the rise in energy prices which we're now confronting i think it's more of an issue for europe it's more of an issue for asia uh, than than it is uh, than it is for for the us having said that I think we also have to to consider a, a, another factor, uh, and which is that you know, energy is uh, extremely capital intensive. Uh, just moving energy around, you know, to if you want to buy a, a container ship worth of oil, that 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 requires a lot of money. And so, you know, as energy prices rise, one of the big question uh, for the coming year is where is the liquidity going to come from to to fund all the the world's you know, oil, natural gas, coal inventories. Um, look at it this way. You know, at any one time, the world needs to fund about 100 days worth of consumption. Now, we consume about 100 million barrels per day. And so if you do that times 100, whether the barrel of oil costs $60 or a barrel of oil called, costs uh, $90, you're in a situation where you might need uh, a lot more uh, capital to, to go around. So usually what you see is as oil prices rise, what you see is an increase uh, in bank loans uh, simply to fund the energy needs of the world. With the increase in bank loans, usually uh, central banks start uh, tightening a little bit. You usually get steeper yield curves, uh, all of which I think is starting to unfold. Uh, if you look at around the world today, we have higher energy prices. We have steepening yield curve. We have central banks that are starting to tighten, um, all of which points to an outperformance of banks, an outperformance of cyclicals, an outperformance of energy. I think this is, you know, this has started this year. This is the new trend. Uh, I see no reason to fade it. I think this is uh, this, this trend is going to continue. Uh, the the performance of value is only just starting. So moving away from energy and uh, another thing you mentioned in the article is kind of the strength of the U.S. household balance sheets. In general, as you know, Americans love to spend money. What opportunities might uh, be presented um, to investors with that outlook? Yeah, so I think that's one of the... Uh, the you know, I, I hear all the bearish arguments for 2022 that, you know, we're going to get less government spending and with less government spending, uh, growth is going to roll over, et cetera. But I think what, what people underestimate is the extent to which the past two years have been completely uh, extraordinary in terms of wealth creation at the consumer level. Um, uh, to, to your point, Michelle, if you look at, the you know, since the start of COVID, the balance sheet of American households has increased by 35 trillion U.S. dollars. That's uh, that's basically twice U.S. GDP. Uh, you, you've never seen anything like it in such a short period of time. Uh, simply put, everything Americans own has gone up in price and gone up a lot, whether houses, whether secondhand cars, whether uh, obviously, stocks and bonds, Bitcoin, you you name it, whatever people own, it's it's typically gone up. And so you're left in a situation where you think, okay, you know, the the the, the balance the balance sheet of America's American households has increased by 35 trillion dollars. What if Americans decide to consume? 10% of that increase. If people say, you know what, I've made so much money in the markets or on my Bitcoin or on my house, I'm going to take 10% of my gains and buy myself a new car, buy myself a vacation or a second home or whatever else. Uh, 
I think you know the the potential for pent up demand uh, in the U.S. When you look at that increase in the U.S. consumer balance sheet, is just simply absolutely enormous. It's uh, it's gargantuan, and so I think you know I I tend to believe that you know auto sales are going to stay very strong for the foreseeable future. You know, restaurant sales, leisure, all these things, it's it's going to stay strong, and you know those are the things that tend to be the the the, the big swing factors in in industrial production, the big swing factor in GDP. I mean, talk to any car dealer, uh, and any car dealer will tell you that they have they have a waiting list as long as their arms that they just can't you know they can't get enough stock to fast enough to sell. So, you know, against all this, I think, you know, consumption will stay strong in 2022, uh, growth will stay strong, and that, that will prevent any meaningful sort of big downdraft in long bond yields. As, you know, as consumption stays strong, as economic activity stays strong, long bond yields will, uh, will continue to creep higher. So that being the case, you mentioned before also that the um, you know we are, the the U.S. is going to be less accommodative both on the fiscal side and on the monetary side. How do you think that works? How long does that that stimulus um, flow through? It sounds like balance sheets are huge, but you know what is that lag effect on this um, as stimulus expires? It seems like that would happen over time. Yeah, well, yeah, it, it will. I just don't think it's a story for 2022. Look at it this way. We still have a massively tight labor market. I mean, at this point, pretty much anyone who wants to get a job can can get a job. Uh, in, in fact, anybody who wants to get a raise can, can probably get a raise unless they're really useless. It's, uh, you know, at, at this point, you know, anybody any anybody who comes to you as a, as a boss, if they're halfway a decent worker, then, and they ask for a raise, you're going to give it to them because you're going to be too worried that they walk away. So, you know that will remain the story in 2022 you know rising wages rising consumption tight labor market you know all this is baked in the cake uh, massive demand for autos you know all all this is is still very much in in front of us uh, it's we're living it but there's no real reason to think that uh, that that it ends so um, so again, I think you know we we have an environment of uh, the environment that the market is pricing itself for uh, makes ample sense to me. An environment where all of a sudden uh, people want to buy more cyclicals, people want to buy, uh, you know, want to be f- focusing on on rising yields, on steeper yield curves, on owning value rather than growth. All of that makes uh, makes ample sense if you just you know look around you and look at the fact that. You know, supply chains remain dislocated. That you know, sh- shelves are still empty. That you still can't get workers. You know, this all of this isn't going to get solved with a click of the finger. It hasn't been solved with a click of the finger for the past six months, and it's not going to get solved with a click of the finger for the next three months because things like you know, shutdowns are still occurring in China. Things like uh, under past underinvestments in the energy grid uh, are still with us. Things like past underinvestment in manual workers like truck drivers or, you know, all, all the construction workers, et cetera, all of that is still with us. And again, none of that gets solved uh, overnight with a click of the finger. So all these comments are leading to the question about inflation and whether or not it's transitory. How do you feel about that? And what do you um, how what what opportunities does that create? I, I I think that your last question is the most important is what opportunities does that create? Because, like, I'll be, I'll be honest, you know, last year I was 
I think I was more hawkish on inflation than anybody I know. I was the, the biggest inflationista out there. And yet, you know, if you go back to the start of 2021, you know, consensus at the start of 2021 was for 2% inflation. And so if, like me, you thought, you know what, we're going to have much higher inflation than 2%, you would have thought with, with higher inflation, probably the, the U.S. dollar is, is going to do badly. Uh, with higher inflation, at least the U.S. Treasury bond market will, will sell off uh, aggressively. Uh, and with higher inflation, you know, U, U.S. growth stocks will, will struggle. And so 2021 rolls around, and here we are. We have, you know, instead of 2% inflation, we have 6% inflation or even 7% inflation now. So instead of 2%, you end up with, with 7% uh, by the end of the year. And how did the markets respond? The markets basically said, talk to the hand, right? They were like completely uninterested. Growth stock continued to outperform, at least until very recently. Bond markets didn't really do very much, and the US dollar held up fine. Uh, so you had rip-roaring inflation in the U.S., and the markets didn't care. And I think the reason, you know, I thought a lot about that, um, and that's be even before going into the fact that gold did absolutely nothing. And so I thought a lot about that, and then I've come to the conclusion that, you know, when it comes to markets, what matters isn't as much perhaps what the economic numbers print, but what policymakers do. Now, the story in 2021 was that we did have inflation, but basically the U.S. government kept saying, we're going to keep money, we're going to keep spending money regardless. We, we don't really care. Even if inflation's higher, we're, we're just going to keep spending. And the central bank was basically saying, well, even if there is inflation, we're going to keep providing money to the federal government for it to keep spending because we don't really care. This is the part that's now changing, of course. The, the rhetoric from the Fed is starting to change. And this is, where that, this is what's already starting to make 2022 uh, a lot more interesting. Um, for me, one of the, the, the fascinating developments since the start of the year is that we have rising bond yields in the U.S., uh, which you know we didn't really have in 2021. This time around, so we are starting to see rising bond yields. And even with rising bond yields, the U.S. dollar isn't going up. Instead, the U.S. dollar is starting to go down. So now the markets are behaving as as you would ex expect a little more. The markets are starting to to basically pricing uh, price in the the possibility that actually the Fed is is behind the curve. Um, and so that brings you to the big question for for 2022: Is do you think the Fed is going to try to get in front of the curve and is going to try to really get inflation the inflation genie back in its bottle, um, or do you think uh, that actually uh, the Fed won't do very much? Um, now I, I tend to believe the latter. Um, I tend to believe the latter because I tend to believe that the inflation is actually not a bug. Uh, it's a feature. Policymakers have been following policies to, to have higher inflation. This is, this is really what they want. They want higher inflation because that's how you deal with the high level of debt uh, that uh, that is prevalent across the system, and so uh, so I think you know they'll always sort of stay behind the curve, and I think the market is starting to realize that. So chances are, if I'm right on this, uh, 2022 will be a year actually of of weaker U.S. dollar, of uh, of dollar debasement uh, as the market starts to uh, to realize what is unfolding. So. When I hear you say that, it makes me think about global rates. It seems like the U.S., if you think about developed markets, the rates are pretty high. Can you put our rates in perspective on a global basis? 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, that is one of the fascinating developments of, uh, of the past 18 months is that while you've had a rapid acceleration in inflation across the Western world, not just in the U.S., but also you know, in Europe, in Canada, in Japan, uh, well, not so much in Japan, actually. Japan's inflation stayed low. But uh, in the U.K., central banks all across the Western world have basically kept uh, short rates, you know, very low. Uh, nobody has, has uh, started to, to, to tighten meaningfully. Meanwhile, if you look across emerging markets, uh, as I mentioned earlier, China stayed very tight uh, last year. And, you know, your, your, your bond yields in China are still on government bonds are still basically, uh, you know, you're getting between two and three percent across the curve. You're, you're actually getting positive real rates uh, in China since the inflation rate is, is about one and a half percent there. If you look at uh, if you look at Brazil, you know, your, your, your short rates uh, in, in Brazil uh, are now in double-digit territory. Same story in Russia. If you look at, uh, at Indonesia, you know, you're going to be getting some, some 7 or 8%. So what, what's happened, I think, across the world is that as inflation picked up, policymakers in emerging markets basically, they went back to the traditional playbook. Um, partly because in emerging markets, you know, they've had to deal with the negative consequences of inflation cycle after cycle. So policymakers in, in emerging markets are very, very familiar with the problems of letting inflation out of the bag. And because they know that once you do that, the, the, the potential consequences for your economy are catastrophic be, simply because, you know, people don't trust emerging market currencies in the same way that they might trust a U.S. dollar or they might trust a, a British pound or a, a euro. And so, you know, policymakers in emerging markets stepped on the brakes pretty quickly. Um, in the Western world, I think the view instead was very much, oh, well, you know, we haven't had inflation for, for 30 years. Inflation isn't a concern. In fact, we'd like to have more inflation. So really, we don't need to, to do very much about all this. And so you've had this, this divergence in policies, which does mean that, uh, you know, today, I think if you're looking for yield and if you look, if you are worried about inflation and you want to have policymakers that are fighting in your corner, then you're going to find that in emerging markets and you're not going to find it in developed markets. That makes a lot of sense. So does that mean that in the developed worlds, we'll, we are basically looking at low yields forever? Or do you think that this inflation is going to cause policy change in a big way? I don't think I think we're going to I think in, in the developed world, we're looking at negative real yields forever. There is when you look at the, the, the fiscal situation of uh, across most developed countries, uh, the, the reality is uh, I don't think central banks can really afford to tighten meaningfully. Again, uh, you know, today's inflation rate is it's not a bug. It's the feature. It's what they want. It's how you deal with the 130 percent debt to GDP. You basically spoil bondholders slowly but surely. This is how Western countries dealt with their post-World War II debt. They did it through a combination of negative real rates and uh, capital controls. Um, I think this is basically where we are now in the Western world. So that being said, do you view higher rates as a negative or a positive for investors? Um, well, depends depends for which asset classes, right? <laughs> the, uh, I tend to look at um, – well – 
I think negative real rates uh, are a negative for all investors uh, for over the very long term. They basically negative real rates encourage excessive financial speculation. They encourage basically over leverage to the ex- to the expense to the at the expense of just productive investments. Um, simply put, you know when, when you have too low a cost of capital, instead of building a new factory, it makes more sense to just you know gear up your balance sheet and uh, do LBOs uh, and basically take out other people's uh, production of capacity. So having uh, too low a cost of capital basically encourages, uh, again, ex- excessive financial speculation and malinvestment. So I'm not sure it's a, it's a positive thing either way. Having said that, uh, and th- the cost of all that tends to be borne by the currency. Um, so you think you might be getting decent returns, but if over time your currency loses all of its value, then what's what's the point? So, no, I think you want to be invested in countries with positive real rates. You want to be invested, and this is especially true for any fixed income investing. Uh, you know, when it comes to the fixed income part of your portfolio today, it'd be madness to have it in anything but uh, emerging markets. You know, why would you want to, uh, you know, saddle yourself with negative real rates, not only today, but for as far as the eye can see, with central banks that are basically showing you that they plan to do absolutely nothing about the growing inflation? I mean, look at it this way. Last year was a year where the uh, U.S. inflation rate moved from 2% to 7%. And throughout the year, the Fed continued to do QE. I mean, if I told you that two or three years ago, that we'd move from 2% to 7% inflation, and that while we were doing this, the Fed would be adding $120 billion every month into the U.S. economy, you would have said I was crazy. But this is the world we now live in. We, we live in a world where the U.S. inflation rate can move from 2 to 7. The Fed can talk about how it's worried about inflation while simultaneously adding an additional $120 billion a month every month into the economy. Clearly, if you look at what they do, not what they say, what they're saying is this: we like this inflation. Yes, for sure. So to make sure we end on a positive note and to make sure we're, you know, investors are clear, what are two or three positive factors you see supporting the market today? Oh, well, I think there's a lot to be to be uh, hopeful uh, about. The, you know, the first one is, as we discussed earlier, growth, you know, economic growth is going to be pretty solid. So any company that, you know, makes its money uh, through, um, you know, through economic growth and through rising cycle and rising consumption, et cetera, should, you know, should have the opportunity to make lots of money in the coming year. So that's you know that's uh, that, that's one factor. It's hard to be too bearish on the market when economic growth is going to stay strong, right? It's uh, you know the ability to deliver earnings will will undeniably be here. Uh, if at the same time interest rates don't go up that much, at the end of the day, a share price is a stream of future earnings discounted by an interest rate on which you tack on a risk premium. Well. The stream of future earnings is going to be fine, uh, and the interest rate isn't going to go up that much. So, you know, do we? All in all, it doesn't sound that bad. That's for sure. So, Louis, I always I always like to ask people this question: If you could only make one investment this year, what would it be? Um, for for how long? For the year. For the year. Oof. 
how much risk okay. are you, how much risk uh, how much risk are you willing to take um you know it's, uh, it's, I, it's a tough i'm not question. talking about anybody else but you yeah okay <laughs> um i'd actually buy uh i'd probably buy the chinese market actually i don't know if it's going to do well for the next year but it's definitely going to do well for the next six months excellent Louis, thank you so much. Uh, I believe I could talk to you for another hour and a half on some of the things you brought up and we would go down the proverbial rabbit hole um, in, <laughs> in a big way. But um, I thank you again and look forward to the next time we get to talk. Thank you very much. Evergreen GovCal is a wealth management firm with offices in Bellevue, Washington, Portland, Oregon, and California's Bay Area. We provide investment management, tax compliance, family office, and retirement planning services. Evergreen is accepting applications for new clients who align with our firm's investment and planning approach. If you think you might be a fit with us, follow the link in the show notes to fill out our prospective client compatibility survey.